Remember the conversation with Stacy Ogresnik? So I, I was just trying to take it all in that he's like lying to me and freaking out that my husband's now on a vent. I'm picturing that my husband probably fought for his life um, as they were doing that and how scared he had to have been not to have nobody in his corner. Um, no, no. no, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let, let me stop you for a second. You were in his corner. They wouldn't let you in there. We did. I, 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 I don't know. In, I don't no. know you very well, but I'm going to stop you there. You were in his corner. And they wouldn't let her stay. Uh, it was in a hospital. <clears throat> and since that uh, interview, Stacy has now legal representation and the United States Senate's uh, offices have been in touch with her. She introduced me to a friend that she met at a rally for medical rights. And courtesy of Bulwark Capital Management, my friend and brother, Zach Abraham, I got to talk to Scott Scarra. And his uh, his experience is going to sound eerie and similar. Well, in spite of them sedating her, which I want to dive into, um, sedation meds reduce yeah. oxygen saturation. So at this point, the evening before she died, she's already been sedated for four days, un- unknown to us. And yet her oxygen is still at 98, 99%. So they sedated her, but they didn't ask permission to do that. In fact, they didn't tell the family. Same thing they did to Ryan. Different hospital, same protocol, same approach. Perhaps the same motive. Because Scott, like Stacy, and I agree with both of them. I think their loved ones were murdered. It's my opinion. A lot of this is going to sound very, very familiar if you heard the Stacy interview. So... What they're hoping by starting the sedation med, their their goal is to get a ventilator in. And so if the person sedated, you know, if my wife and I would have given them the pre-authorization for a ventilator, Grace would have been vented 10 minutes later. I'm positive of that. All they wanted was, you know, so that was an example where they, they asked our permission ahead of time. The uh, Presidex was not an example where they asked for permission ahead of time. So what happens is, so they need this for the ventilator. But from a practical perspective, um, a few things happen. Number one is the room gets classified as ICU. So Grace's care never changed and she never changed rooms. But the amount of money the hospital received changed. Yes, it did. Oh, and you remember how Stacy wasn't there for a period of time with Ryan because they wouldn't let him be and they changed a bunch of things? Well... It happens that Grace's daddy got removed by an armed guard and they had his daughter alone for 44 hours. Yeah, so I actually wasn't at her side at this point because three days earlier on October 10th, I was taken out by an armed guard. So at that point, we had to hire an attorney to get my daughter in as a replacement advocate. So we had 44 hours without advocacy. During that time, they increased the dose of Presidex seven different times. And that's in his mind, and that of presumably his legal representation is what ultimately killed his daughter, the drugs. Scott Scarra joins us on The Todd Herman Show. The Todd Herman Show is 100% disapproved by big pharma, technocrats, and tyrants everywhere. Now, from the high mountains of free America... Here's the Emerald City Exile, Todd Herman. (laughs) 
Today is the day the Lord has made, and these are the times through which God has decided we shall live. And kind, kind partners at Soda Weight Loss, SodaWeightLoss.com. I want a big announcement here uh, just to say this. Normally, we spend more time talking about our partners. I beg you, if you've got too much fat in your body, get it off because it's going to keep you out of the clutches of systems like this. And I know there's great doctors. My, my, my sister's a nurse practitioner. I know that there's great medical practitioners. But one of the safest and easiest ways to make sure that you never end up in a circumstance like we're about to talk with Scott is to get the unwanted fat off your body. So go to SotaWeightLoss.com. S-O-T-A, weightloss.com. I've seen it work to take 150 pounds of fat off. I've done that. Did that before. Before I even understood what eating protocols were. More importantly, I've kept it off. It's sodaweightloss.com. We have been blessed to now get to work with parents who are fighting a battle that is going to define our times. And I was just mentioning this in the the run-up to the show. Um, Scott, I want to make sure I get your name right. I'm so bad I'm getting old. Scott Shara, uh, or Shara, joins us. Grace's daddy, uh, I like this, uh, your beloved little girl, uh, 19. They're always a little girl, aren't they? Uh, my daughter's in, in, in her 18, and she's my little girl. Um, had Down syndrome. She went into the hospital, and the long and painful story is she didn't come out. Um, the details are shocking. Scott, thanks for coming on to share this with us. Well, thanks for having me, Todd. Um, tell us about Grace. Oh, Grace is, yep. uh, uh, there's so much to tell. There's so much to tell about Grace. And so Grace had Down syndrome, as you mentioned, she was 19. Uh, so Grace was very high functioning. And to give you a perspective, uh, so people can have the context, Grace could read and write. She could drive a car, ride a horse, play violin. We really never treated Grace as having a disability. And so the sky was, the sky was literally the limit. She was um, what is is probably the the neatest thing about Grace is that she showed what God's grace looks like if a person is following Him on Earth. Uh, she she figured out on her own that I'm her earthly dad and my wife was her earthly mom and that's what she called us. <laughs> she called me earthly dad and my wife earthly mom. Beautiful. Uh, then you know from a more of a how what what was she like on a daily basis i mean she was she was a laugh a minute um she really got she got literal humor and you know that's because i taught her a little <laughs> literal humor early on before when she was really young so she was like um so once she was 10 years old 10 11 she really stayed that age and if you remember your kids being that age, it's it's the most fun age you could you could have. So she really stayed that age and and she got the literal humor. So when she was about five, before she got it, I took her. Uh, my wife cursed me with going to Walmart and I really do not <laughs> like that store. So I Grace and I took Grace with me. We're driving. And I said, hey, Grace, just so you know, everybody that shops at Walmart is a zombie. <laughs> and. So we get inside Walmart and she she pokes a guy in the stomach and she said, Dad, they're not zombies. <laughs> so then, well, that that bred this whole um, literal humor thing. And oh, my gosh, she she uh, she really got it. I'll show you. I have this picture here in my office. I'll just show you. 
Um, so this sign, can you yep. see it? Yep, Todd? got it. Yep. Okay, so when Grace saw that sign the first time, you know, you remember, so she just sees things through the literal humor. And she said, Dad, look at that sign. I said, yeah, what, what does it mean? She said, watch out for falling bites. <laughs> so it really gives you, it gives you a perspective of what she oh. was like. And she was, she was an absolute joy to have as a child. I, I have, you know, people should not have that kind of a blessing in their life. We don't deserve it. I mean, we deserve... Um, you know, we need God's mercy every day for how much we sin. So I don't know why he picked us to have such a blessing as her, but but he did. And I presume one of the reasons was, is he knew how she was going to die before she was born and knew it would light a fire in me to, um, to be yeah. used. Yeah, and I can see that it has. And uh, Grace developed um, COVID, and I I know all about uh, comorbid factors. I don't know about them in relation to uh, Down syndrome. I've never heard of a connection that it would make it worse, but um, maybe you can tell us about that. But you decided to take Grace to or felt you had to take Grace to which hospital? Yeah, so Down syndrome doesn't is not a comorbidity whatsoever, what yeah. you know the the propaganda with with COVID. So I really can't tell you for sure that Grace had COVID. We believe she did. We had tested her with a home test on October first, and she tested positive. Um, of course, now that I understand the narrative, the hospital had an incentive to test her positive because of the financial gain. So I don't know if she really had COVID or not. Yep. But what motivated us to take her to the hospital was she, her oxygen saturation dropped, uh, dropped to the high 80s um, on October 6th. Of, this is in 2021. And, you know, the propaganda, unfortunately, uh, we were on the frontline doctor's protocol, and I'm not saying that they're spreading propaganda. That's not the point. But we were we were in this mindset that if oxygen gets to the low 80s or below 90, it's an emergency. And of course, low oxygen is an emergency. But the frontline doctor's protocol said, you know, that this is an emergency. So, you know, the thing that I don't know, because I don't have a baseline, is that when, whenever Grace would have gotten a cold or the flu in the past, what was her oxygen level? I have no idea. But now because of COVID, we had the oxygen meter. So now we're measuring something that we would have never measured. So if we would have never had an oxygen meter, for example, Grace would be alive today. Uh, because there's plenty of cases where people are in, even in the 70s in their oxygen and, you know, they dip down for a day, two or three and, and then they recover. Um, so anyway, that's why we took her in was for low oxygen. She was still fine. She was just a little lethargic. She wasn't having trouble breathing or anything like yeah. that. And the emergency room physician said, well, let's just check Grace into the hospital for for three, four days, we'll get her on oxygen and a steroid. And if they would have only done what the emergency room physician told me, Grace would be alive today. And I say that with a thousand percent confidence because three days after Grace died, I went into a different hospital in substantially worse condition than she was, way lower oxygen. I was having trouble breathing and they turned me around in 24 hours. Yeah. And so you took her to uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Appleton, Wisconsin. Um, and they told you, hey, there's these things that we can do Correct. to help turn this around very quickly. And then I'm, I'm, 
I'm getting that nervous feeling I get uh, when I start thinking about COVID protocols and um, I'm getting that nervous feeling that they didn't stick to that, that there were other things that they did to your baby girl. Well, what they did, you know, so interestingly, you know, I was not awake to ventilators. I was awake to remdesivir before we got in the hospital. So I already knew we weren't going to have Grace get on remdesivir. So that never happened. She also never got on a ventilator, but it was because of me paying attention that she didn't get on a ventilator. And then I started researching ventilators while we were in, in the hospital. So I went into the hospital with the ventilator paradigm that was created by President Trump when at the beginning of COVID, he said, you know, we have a ventilator shortage and there was factories being converted to make ventilators, you know, all that blah, blah, blah. So then when the the first time a doctor said, you need to put your daughter on a ventilator, I said, well, what is that recommendation based on? And he told me it was based on a blood gas draw that they did the evening before. And based on the circumstances the evening before, I didn't think that number was objective. So I asked them to retake the blood gas draw, which they did, and Grace was fine. But I asked him when he said that, what is the prognosis if Grace goes on a ventilator? And he said only 20% of people walk out alive once they're on a ventilator. And as I dug into it, then I realized, okay, it's actually worse than what he said, but he did at least get me started realizing you got to dig into this. And so I found out that it's more like only 10% of the people walk out alive and most of them die in the first year because of the damage the ventilator did to their lungs. So at that point, I knew we were not putting grace on a ventilator. And in fact, they pushed us four times after that, but not with blood gas numbers to back it up. It was with the idea that we want you and your wife, my wife's name is Cindy, to give a pre-authorization or a pre-approval so that we can put a grace on a ventilator just in case we need to. And these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. Well, you know, now in hindsight, I see what the push was for a ventilator is about a $300,000 payday to the hospital. And it's part of the NIH protocol that's designed to, to literally murder people in the hospital. So we never, we, Grace was never on remdesivir, never on a ventilator. Those are the two primary causes of death when people go to the hospital with COVID. What they did instead was they sedated Grace with a drug called Presidex. And that was the first cause of death. Presidex is a sedation med that's not supposed to be used for more than 24 hours. And they started Grace on that drug October 9th. Uh, when her last day came around, October 13th, the doctor started the day with a phone call with us telling us how great of a day Grace had yesterday that we should work on nutrition. And yet, you know, I don't know, you know, everything I will tell you regarding those details is 100% factual, but why did she start the day with that recommendation that she had such a good day? We should work on nutrition. We should get her out of bed, all these things. And 11 and a half hours later, she is dead. And I believe the reason, so this is my, my theory, is that because that morning, the purpose of his call was to find out our decision for the fifth time asking for the ventilator. When we said no, I think they had a pre-scripted plan already in place because everything that happened after that fits like a glove if your goal is to take somebody out. 
And I want to be clear. You said that you uh, you knew about the ventilator, or you, you didn't know about ventilators. You knew about remdesivir, uh, or as people say, run death is near. And you were committed to not right. having Grace be put on that. Um, but did the hospital, because they got money for all this stuff. All this stuff was, was th- these were all paid killings, as I see it, um, and, and paid to find cases that weren't cases. Did they push uh, a ventilator for your daughter? They did. The first time it happened was on the morning of the 8th of October. Grace's first day in the hospital was the 7th. And on the morning of the 8th, the doctor came in and said, you're going to need to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And I said, what is that decision or recommendation based on? And he said they did a blood gas draw the evening before. And based on the circumstances of that evening, I thought, I don't think these numbers are accurate. And so I asked them to retest the blood gas they did, Grace was fine. But then I asked him, what is the prognosis if Grace goes on a ventilator? At this point, I I had no idea that ventilators were part of the protocol to kill people because I had the paradigm that was created by President Trump that we have a ventilator shortage, um, you know, and we're converting factories to make ventilators. I thought it was just a tool in the tool chest. Well, he said a version of the truth, which which then I, I dug right into. He said only 20% of the people put on a ventilator walk out alive. So I dug into that. I had my laptop in the room. So every time they would say something or I would ask a question, I dug into it and researched. And I found out that the reality is only 10% of people walk out alive. And most of those who do die in the first year because of complications related to the ventilator. So at that point, I knew we weren't going to do a ventilator. But they asked us four times subsequently for a pre-authorization or a pre-approval for a ventilator. And, you know, as I see it now, because of all the research I've done, the ventilator is about a $300,000 payday. So I can see why they were pressing it. And the way they did it is they they said, well, we just want this pre-authorization just in case. Uh, these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. And <clears throat> what happens, people don't realize this, but the person in charge of your loved one's care is called a hospitalist. And this hospitalist, the way that I see it now is they're really the salesperson. Their their training is in how to be a smooth talker. So they're really the hospital representative to communicate goals of the hospital to the family. So the hospitalist, you know, after we avoided the ventilator that first time, well, then his his script was to uh, so now I'm, I'm in the room with Grace at this point. He said, well, Scott, isn't a 20% chance? This was the hospitalist now, not the specialist that recommended the ventilator. But he said, Scott, isn't a 20% chance better than no chance? So you got to, my daughter's doing fine at this point. So what, you know, they're setting this whole thing up. Um, it's It's really something when you look at it in hindsight, especially with all the research that I've done. So ultimately, what they, you know, what they did the morning of Grace's last day, the doctor called us requesting an answer from the phone call the night before for the fifth time for the pre-authorization for the ventilator. We said no. And it's almost as, you know, what I'm going to tell you is a sequence of events that fits a theory that I have. So the theory that I have is that 
we signed Grace's death certificate on October 13th of 2021 because we denied the ventilator. Remember, the ventilator has about a $300,000 payday to the hospital. Statistically, that hospital was at 100% capacity the day Grace died and the emergency room was full. So as I pieced this together with the money trail, my wife said, you know, Grace was worth more dead than alive. And the sequence of events that happened that last day, which I want to drill down with you, really shows that um, that it supports the the theory that they intentionally took her out that day. Yeah, and I, and I want to explore that with you. Uh, it's horrifying as you know people begin to wake up to some of the mechanisms in place and and, and pressure selling um, something that's that's. It is not needed is a hallmark of a swindle. And it is so remarkable to me that, that we don't yet have, um, a, uh, I would say, you know, a mass event of doctors and nurses speaking out. And I understand the threat to careers. And I do, I gave up a career in radio. Um, number one, to put God at the center. Number two, uh, to be sure that I was not subject to speech codes, you know, and now we have a national radio show, but we have it on our terms. Uh, so I want to continue to explore this with you, Scott. I mentioned to you earlier, we're blessed to have partners in the show. One of our new partners is called um, is, is called a healthy cell. And this is tight to this topic because one, there's a lot of ways to defend your health. Physical fitness is one of them. Eating properly is one of them. Uh, maintaining a good body weight is another one. But sleep is so, so misunderstood as the center of this. You know, sleep is the only time muscle grows. It's the only time that our bodies in our brains store things. So REM sleep is so important because it's the movement of files in our brains, as it were, and memories and putting things in the right place. That's one of the reasons why if you don't get enough sleep, you're confused. And, you know, radical lack of sleep can lead to delusions, etc. And it's also a time in our body where we release hormones that don't release at any other time. And 70% of Americans are lacking sleep and, and radically so. And one of the reasons for this is that some people are using sleep aids that are, that are just not absorbable. If you're using melatonin in a capsule or powder form, it is 165% or so less absorbable than healthy cell, which is a micro gel technology. Okay. It doesn't have any of the also ingredients. You know, you'll read uh, the, the inert ingredients like fillers and stuff. None of that. It goes straight to work in your body. I'm here to tell you, I've tried melatonin. I used to take a lot of melatonin. I've never slept better than with healthy cells, sleep aid, REM sleep aid. And it's one of multiple products they have. They've set up a store for you. It's healthycell.com slash Todd. That's healthycell.com slash Todd. Use promo code Todd for 20% off your first order. That's healthycell.com slash Todd promo code. Uh, Todd for 20% off your first order and that's a great way to stay healthy and Scott Ashar is with us talking about his beloved daughter 19 year old baby they're always our baby Grace um, felt compelled to take her to the hospital and you've just talked to us about the hospitalist um, selling 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 on the ventilators and you began you sound like a guy who takes notes and looks at every detail and you were looking at every detail here. So what was Grace's blood oxygen? How was she doing at this point, this fifth time they tried to shove the ventilator in her throat? Well, that's a, that's a really a fantastic question. And you surprisingly hit the nail on the head regarding my personality. Yeah. Um, my background is as a CPA. I don't own a CPA firm anymore, but that 
that um, mindset had me taking notes and really became the impetus to the investigation that I did into Grace's records. So, you know, Grace's oxygen level is really a point of contention because, you know, on October 9th, so this is the second day she's in the hospital. I'll just share this example because you're asking what was her oxygen level? It was always fine every time I measured it, but the hospital has an incentive to measure a different number than reality because think through, they took Grace out with us there. Most situations, the family is not in the room when their loved one dies. And so when you start investigating the records, they can justify certain procedures if they can falsify the oxygen. And I'm going to give you a pointed example. The and So the morning of the 9th, Grace is hungry. Of course, Grace can feed herself, but she's got a BiPAP mask on, which is also another uh, situation that she didn't need. But she had it on. She is said, Dad, can you order food? So I order food, start feeding her. The nurse comes running in and says, Scott, you can't do that. I said, what, what's the reason? She said, well, her oxygen saturation is only at 85%. And so she was concerned that, you know, I removed the BiPAP mask, I feed her, then it's going to drop lower. And so I thought to myself, I can't, I don't think that's accurate. And I had my own oxygen um, finger monitor in the room because I suspected I was going to get COVID. So I wanted to be prepared myself. And so I put it on Grace's finger and it read 95%. So I called the nurse back in and I said, is my finger meter accurate? She said, yes, it is. I said, well, why is my $50 meter reading 95% and your $50,000 meter is only reading 85%? And she said, well, because the leads get sweaty. And I said, well, if that's a known cause of bad readings, why don't you proactively change out these leads every three or four hours or whatever it takes so you have an accurate reading, given this is the primary statistic you are using to manage my daughter's care. And she snottily responded and pointed her finger at me, said, you should just be thankful you caught this. So you you asked what was Grace's oxygen? Um, the fact is, is every time that we measured it, and so myself up until I was taken out by an armed guard, then my daughter Jessica became a replacement. Um, Grace's night before her last night or last day on this earth, so October 12th, Jessica monitored her oxygen the entire night. It was at 98 and 99% the whole night. Um, so in spite of them sedating her, which I want to dive into, um, sedation meds reduce yeah. oxygen saturation. So at this point, the evening before she died, she's already been sedated for four days, un unknown to us, and yet her oxygen is still at 98, 99%. Well, wait, I want to make sure everybody heard this because this is the second time this has come up. Um, you came to us, uh, uh, your your friend and fellow sufferer who's turned this into mission, Stacey Ogresnik, uh, her husband, uh, Ryan, was put on sedation without her knowledge, without her permission. And she noticed a change in his behavior. Uh, and they were saying the same thing, oxygen level, oxygen level, oxygen level. And they forcibly vented him against his will in her mind. And she said, I, I know he didn't want to be vented. He said he didn't want to be vented. You're saying that they also began sedating your daughter, Grace, without what well, she is Down syndrome, 19, I assume you're a legal guardian, but they didn't go to you and say, we want to do this. They just sedated her. 
That's correct. There was no the there was a few times where there I would consider it informed consent. So this idea with the ventilator was not informed consent at all because they're trying to sell something. But I'll give you another example. So the first day, so Grace's first day was October seventh. The COVID specialist came in and said, "We'd like to try this drug on your daughter called Toxalizumab," and so. You know, I I didn't, you know, at this point, I'm still trusting the white coat. I don't think they're, you know, I don't realize that the hospitals have become extensions of the government trying to kill people. So I just did what I would always do. Well, spell, spell that. So I wrote it down. I said, I'll research it and let you know. So I start researching it. I texted a doctor friend who's out, outside and said, will you look at this too? So her and I both looked at it inside of a couple hours. We came to the conclusion that this drug is is no good. The placebo group did better than the test group, and the drug has umpteen side effects. So his partner in crime comes in and says, what is your decision on toxilisumab? And I said, we're not going to do it. Well, what's the reason? I showed him on my laptop the New England Journal of Medicine um, blind placebo study, and he gets mad at me. And so I thought, well, I mean, it's typical. These doctors have gigantic egos. You know, I'm just a dumb dad, but, you know, I, I can read a, I can read a report. And, you know, so we didn't do it. I found out subsequently by another lady who lost her Down syndrome daughter that the push for toxilisumab is one dose is $22,000. So, oh, of course, Lord. that's the... That's what the push was. Um, I don't even remember the question how we got off on this, but I want to just I want to dive into um, Presidex, which is the drug they used on Grace. So yes, they didn't. They don't let you know this stuff. They just do it. Uh, in fact, they never. When my my daughter Jessica was there, they never called it sedation. They always said um, we're doing we're giving Grace a drug for anxiety. Well, Grace was not an anxious person. Grace was just a calm, loving kid. You know, she didn't. Yeah, you you can't understand it unless you know somebody with Down syndrome. So Grace, um, Grace was just really her normal self, uh, sleepier than normal. But we didn't realize she's sleepy because of this sedation med. So they they the purpose of this sedation med from a, a technical perspective is the person has to be sedated before they're vented. So what they're hoping by starting the sedation med, their their goal is to get a ventilator in. And so if the person's sedated, you know, if my wife and I would have given them the pre-authorization for a ventilator, Grace would have been vented 10 minutes later. I'm positive of that. All they wanted was, you know, so that was an example where they, they asked our permission ahead of time. The uh, Presidex was not an example where they asked for permission at a time. So what happens is, so they need this for the ventilator. But from a practical perspective, um, a few things happen. Number one is the room gets classified as ICU. So Grace's care never changed and she never changed rooms. But the amount of money the hospital received changed. Um, and the other thing that that happens, which is more important than that, is if you want to you you get wise to what's going on, or you've just had enough. Uh, when somebody is sedated, you can't just take them out of the hospital with you. It's called against medical advice. So the doctor will fight you, and you have to sign off that you're taking responsibility financially and for the person's life. So they put this fear of God in you that hey, you can't just take your loved one. This is against medical advice. I mean, that's a that's a technical requirement that that. Um, 
that comes with a sedation med. So this sedation med in particular, Presidex, has a package insert warning label that says specifically to not use for more than 24 hours because if you do, it causes, it doesn't say may cause, it causes acute respiratory failure. Grace's first cause of death on her death certificate was acute respiratory failure. And that was directly caused by the hospital using that drug for more than 24 hours. And when we get into the detail of Grace's last day, you'll see what they did. They, it, they literally, one of the medical malpractice nurses who reviewed Grace's records framed it this way. They said they chemically restrained Grace to set up her death. And, and I say set up because there's two more causes of death that are worse than the Presidex. So we'll get into that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the Presidex um, begins the process. This is the the, the sedation, but it begins lowering blood oxygen because we know this is what happens under sedation. Uh, So that's one of three, as you guys see it, uh, contributing causes of death to grace. And I want to get to the other one and certainly go through the painful process of hearing about uh, grace's last day. Um, Let me just do this and then we will close this stuff out and just continue with the story. Um, My friend is a Navy vet and he is a Navy SEAL. His name is Tim Cruikshank, 25 years uh, in the Navy as a Navy SEAL. By the way, he's also also physician's assistants, and he has seen his share of things that make him uncomfortable about the world of hospitals and medicine. One day we'll get Tim on to talk about that, hopefully. Um, he has new blends at Bonefrog Coffee. He founded Bonefrog to honor the men and women who give their lives in service to this country. So basically, team guys, special warfare, and 10% of the proceeds go there to those families. But understand this, the coffee is so rock solid. They took a guy who is a 50-year coffee legend, Dave Stewart, to help create brands, to mentor them, to even roast coffees. They've got two new new roasts. Number one is Zen Frog Decaf. Bunch of people have contacted me saying, I got to get on bonefrog.us. I love the merch, but I don't drink caffeine. Bonefrog.us, full-bodied, medium roast, uh, doesn't have a, the, the boost of caffeine. Plus, Bonefrog uses the Swiss water process. It's 100% chemical-free for the Zen Frog Decaf blend, okay? Bonefrog.us. Now, on the other side, this is the stuff for me. This is the new one. I'm going to be do- having the door kicker. It's a light roast, but I've told you before, light is somewhat oxymoronic when it comes to the way they brew these coffees. They are so tasty. I've never liked a light coffee except for the Bone Frog. Door Kicker has the most caffeine of any of the Bone Frog roasts, and it's perfect for people who want to kickstart their day. I'm going to guess Crookshank might have been thinking about me when he made this coffee. It's bonefrog.us where you get 5% off lifetime subscriptions. And remember this, that every package says God Country Team. It's non-negotiable because it's felt by the heart. Bonefrog.us. Scott Shara is with us. Just talked about contributing cause as he sees it and his team sees it. Number one, a, a <laughs> sedating his daughter who didn't need to be sedated. Um, Down syndrome kids are... are our young people are are legendary for their mood and and their upbeat nature and they're willing to do what they're told. The oxygen level was fine, it sounds like. So then once this happens, she's been sedated, the timeline rolls forward. And all this time, Scott, you're at your daughter's side fighting for her. So you said there's two other contributing causes of death. Yeah, so I actually wasn't at her side at this point because because three days earlier on October 10th, I was taken out by an armed guard. 
So at that point, we had to hire an attorney to get my daughter in as a replacement advocate. So we had 44 hours without advocacy. During that time, they increased the dose of Presidex seven different times. So they sedated my little buddy instead of taking care of her. Wait, wait, so, Scott, let me just uh, let me take you back for a second. What on earth did they use as a reason to have an armed guard pull you out of your daughter's room? Well, they used three excuses. The first one, the head nurse said the last two shifts of nurses don't want you in the room. And, you know, so, of course, they didn't want me in the room because of examples like I was sharing with you. So I shared the example of challenging the oxygen. Uh, a one that was really worse than the oxygen was the feeding. So they would not allow me to feed her. And what I explained to the nurses, I said, listen, we can feed Grace. There's nothing preventing us from feeding her. And there's, well, her oxygen, blah, blah, blah. I said, listen, I see what you guys do. They come in and because Grace is on a BiPAP, it dries out her mouth. And so they swab her mouth. And I said, they remove the BiPAP when they do it. They just put her on a, on a, a high flow cannula, but they turn the pressure down. Her oxygen stays fine. I said, so you can just do that. Oh, no, we can't. The doctor said we, if we use a high flow cannula, it has to be on this high setting. I said, it doesn't have to be on the high setting. I said, listen, the fact is I'm in charge of my daughter's care, not the doctor. So these are just many examples. You know, I was just challenging. So she said, the, the nurses don't want you in the room. The second, thing she said is you've been shutting off the alarms at night and I said well of course I've been shutting off the alarms the nurses trained me how to do it because many times it's 20-30 minutes for the nurses to come in so I asked them how do I shut these things off if they're you know so they trained me how to do the non-essential alarms and you know it's so frustrating because I I asked why are these alarms going off and they said well every time Grace moves her arm the alarm goes off I said well, what's the reason well because we put the IV in the crux of her elbow I said well why did you do that if you know that the alarm goes off every time she moves well it was easy that was the easiest place for us and you know it's like I you know you're fit to be tied right um so then the third reason she says, which is, it's just, you can't make this stuff up, Todd. She says, we suspect you have COVID. And I said, well, no kidding. <laughs> oh, have, my gosh. We yeah, sus- no kidding. I have, I have COVID. I mean, you guys are the ones who told me I'm going to get COVID. I knew that as a risk coming in here. And, you know, I, I did have COVID as far as I know. I tested myself at one o'clock in the afternoon the first day I was there with Grace because I got a fever and it tested positive. So big deal. You got COVID. I, I'm here for my daughter, not not worrying about COVID. Good um, Lord. Sorry, that's... Uh, no, that's so upsetting to hear. And uh, you're a better man than I am because um, I would have been, they would have had to violently remove me. And I admire you that you kept your head, you got your daughter in there. Uh, but you said how, it, at the time that you had 44 hours where Grace was unrepresented by a family member and they turned this drug up seven different times um, that's right. to sedate your daughter even further. Uh, and at that point, I have to imagine that the signs of sedation, that your daughter was able to see the signs of sedation at that point as she was there caring for her sister. Well, it's interesting because when Jess got in the room, um, they so when I was there, they you know, I, I objected to wearing all the, the crazy garb and everything. Um, but when Jess got in as the replacement, so Jess was instead of my wife because my wife had COVID, um, but they made Jess gown up. So she's got all this 
this contraption on that, you know, it looks like you're ready to take off on an Apollo flight. Yeah. And, you know, so when she got in the room, she starts talking with Grace. And um, Grace said, (laughs) this just gives you how well Grace was doing. So even though Grace was sedated, she said to to Jess, well, you sound just like my sister Jessica. <laughs> she can't, she can't tell yeah. because Jess is yeah. all. And Jess says, "I am your sister Jessica," uh-huh. and and Grace doesn't believe her. So Jess rolls up her sleeve. Jess has some um, very distinguishable tattoos, and so yeah. she rolls up the sleeves and shows her, and then they give each other a big hug. Oh, how beautiful! And so it was. It's it's awesome. So all Jess really notices that Grace is more sleepy than normal. But I mean, that's yeah. an example. Grace was still normal, yeah. but she was sleepy. So we don't realize why she's sleepy. You just think, well, you know, of course, in a hospital, you're sleepy because they're waking you up constantly with these stupid alarms. Yeah. All right. But really, what they're doing is setting up her her last day to take her out. All right. So let's run through that painful timeline now. So it started at eight o'clock in the morning with a phone call from the doctor. And the purpose of the call was to follow up on a call from the evening before where they had asked for the fifth time for the pre-authorization for the ventilator. And so my theory with this is that we signed Grace's death certificate for that particular day because we would not approve the ventilator because the sequence of events are so um, out of character if your goal is to keep somebody alive. And so you know, so we say no, he immediately switches gears and said, well, Grace had such a good day yesterday, we should work on nutrition. And he convinces us to put in a feeding tube. Okay. And he says, we should get her out of bed. You know, we got to get her organs working so she can, you know, be home in three, four days. So we're thinking, okay, yeah, let's, let's, you know, we're still trusting the white coat. Uh, So ultimately, we get done with the on the phone call. Jessica says to the nurse that she's going to take a shower. The nurse in charge of Grace's care that day had 14 years of ICU experience. This is important when you see what they did to, to kill her because this was not a, a rookie. So the nurse said to Jessica, you cannot take a shower in the room. And Jess said, well, what's the reason? You let my dad take a shower in the room. And she said, I don't care what we did for your dad. If you're going to take a shower, you got to go home. So Jessica, being at least a little fearful of being potentially kicked out like I was three days earlier, uh, she says to Grace, hey, Grace, is it okay if I go home and take a shower? Grace was prone at this time. Grace acknowledges with a head nod. Yeah, that's fine. Jess is back in an hour. When she's gowning up in the hallway, she overhears the hospitalist another doctor and the 14-year ICU nurse say the family's not going to like this. And so she said, what aren't they going to like? While Jess was gone, just the one hour she's gone, remember an hour earlier, they just got done saying Grace had such a good day, we should get her out of bed. But Grace now Grace wants to get out of bed. She wants to get out of bed to go to the bathroom. And instead of getting her out of bed to go to the bathroom, they strapped her down to the bed and made her poop in the bed. <sighs> and they increased the dose of Presidex to now 14 times the dose that she was on four and a half days earlier. Eight minutes after that, so that's now at 1048 in the morning, 
1056, and we, of course, didn't know this at the time. We know this now because of, of going through the records. The doctor put an illegal do not resuscitate order on Grace. So one of the attorneys who looked at this said, well, they obviously thought the Presidex was going to kill her, and they had to have the DNR order in place because it's eight minutes afterward after they do this. Okay, well, it gets substantially worse. So if you go through the timeline, then at 1125, they gave her a dose of lorazepam, which is an anti-anxiety med. Well, Grace is nearly knocked out at this point. At 1137, now they put the feeding tube in. Then they wait, you know, if the goal is to feed her, you know, you would start that right away, right? They don't start feeding her till 159 in the afternoon. Well, at this point, she's knocked out. At 546, they gave her another dose of lorazepam, 549, another dose. And at 615, they gave her a two milligram dose of morphine. So in 29 minutes, she had those three meds, Presidex, lorazepam, morphine, that would have taken you and I out, Todd. So what got me, you know, so I was not awake, okay? I was a conservative with a healthy distrust for the government. Now I'm... I'm awake. You know, I'm not as awake as you, but I am awake. I know more than what a human being should know. But at this point, so it took me until April to really start getting into why this is all happening and become awake because I went through all the records in detail. And in April, I had about 500 hours of investigative work into Grace's case. And that's when I finally concluded she was murdered. Before that, I didn't know. But what got me to that point was, you know, I knew about the med combination, but how they do it got me to this point. So there's a package insert for morphine. The package insert for morphine says they're supposed to have the reversal drug bedside and monitor the patient. These meds are contraindicated according to that package insert. So for this sequence to happen, not only did the doctor have to order the meds, but the pharmacist, of course, would have known better. The pharmacist had to sign off on the order. Then the alarm had to be overridden because the meds are contraindicated. And then last, the nurse, who was not a rookie, had to give Grace those meds. And so that's why I thought this is not medical malpractice. This is murder. Well, then the final um, nail in the coffin, literally, was when Jessica called Cindy and I on FaceTime. So this is 6.15. Grace is starting to get cold. An hour and five minutes later at 7.20, she called us panicking. She's got us on FaceTime. We can see Grace in the bed. She said, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. I said, get the nurses in. She said, they will not come in. I've been trying. She estimated 30 nurses in the hallway at that time. So Cindy and I start screaming, save our daughter. They holler back, she's DNR. This is when we learn she's DNR, and we scream back, she's not DNR, save our daughter, and they refused. Not one doctor or nurse came in Grace's room after they gave Grace the morphine, and they came in after she died and then called her death. They would not come in. So then two more pieces of that puzzle that I want to explain. So now I drive Cindy to the hospital. Uh, I sat in the truck because I had COVID. They go through, met with the the mortician, our pastor met us there. Uh, We start, we talk with Jessica later on that evening and Jess said, dad, there was an armed guard posted outside the room. 
and she, and she said, I know it was for Grace because after Grace died, I crawled in bed with her and waited for you to bring mom. And the armed guard stood outside and watched Jessica from the nurse's room that entire time. And we learned out from the medic, we learned from the medical malpractice nurse the why behind him being there. They wanted to make sure Grace was gone. They had did not take the BiPAP mask off at this point. Grace could have still been revived after they called her dead. Wow. Then last point, and then you can ask some more questions, Todd, and we can dive into, you know, what's really going on. But, you know, um, the last point was when the pastor walks Cindy out in a wheelchair, one of the nurses had Grace's belongings on a cart and she leaned down. And this is really what gave us the clue that we've got to dig. She leaned down and said, uh, Mrs. Shera, me and several of the nurses don't think Grace should have died today. You know, so that that really is the impetus as to why I'm doing all of this is to help other people. But, you know, what the shocking point is, is why hasn't that nurse come out publicly? Yeah. And this this really becomes, you know, I'm I've become a full time advocate. I've turned my business over to my guys. You you got all, you you're doing your own thing now, so you don't have to bow down to anybody else. But, you know, we're we're the rarities most of these people are afraid to, to, you know, they're, they're paralyzed by fear. Uh, for one, one thing, they're also uh, paralyzed by what I have learned is the banality of evil. They actually think it's okay. Um, yeah. And people are spiritual captives, Scott. And this is the thing that's becoming more and more clear to me is that when you are removed from the word of God and you don't stand in his word, and that's not your firm foundation, you can no longer hear the father's voice. And, uh, you know, the Lord Jesus had said, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. And hey, if you're not with me, you're not going to know my voice. And I think once you start falling for those lies, um, hey, Satan, uh, he's he's doing as much as he can to harvest souls now. And he didn't get crisis. <laughs> Not even close. Not even close. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just see these people as lost. And look, there's historical precedent for people shutting up. You know, there, and I know that we get in trouble. We're never, ever, 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 ever supposed to, you know, recognize and acknowledge the fact that that the evil of the Holocaust did not begin with gas chambers. It began with words. It began with regarding people like your daughter as as quote useless eaters. That's um, right. And the first the first pass at killing people was medically done with people they determined to be useless eaters in mental facilities in care homes, and then it went industrial. And there's the famous quote from the Bonhoeffer book that the church is saying more loudly. The train cars went by and the Lutherans sang more loudly. We don't want to hear the train cars. And there's the precedence of doctors, you know, with the wrong sex hormones in kids and and the horrific surgeries that are, are, are mutilations of children. They won't speak out about that. So many people, it's taken a decade. We've been talking about that as I have as a host to have people come and can, for it to be in the, in, in the mainstream abortion at an industrial scale to, to think that the, that powerful people will not kill us is folly. It's happened throughout history. So you'd mentioned, you know, you, you're plenty awake, by the way, you're, you're awake in a very, very specific and very painful way. Uh, you said you wanted to talk about what's really going on. So what is really going on? 
Well, I'm going to first mention, you know, you, you made some fantastic references to the Holocaust. So what really woke me up is investigating the Holocaust. So almost the entire month of June I spent, uh, I had about 50 interviews in June and all the downtime I was researching the Holocaust. And in the process, I met a lady by the name of Vera Sherev and her and I have been doing joint interviews together. And so she taught me quite a bit about the the details of the Holocaust. But as that research, um, you know, it's interesting how God opens up doors. So, you know, Vera was a door that, that he opened up, but the biggest door that he opened up was a term called the Hegelian dialectic. I really didn't think anything of it at the time, but as I, then I started doing a deep dive into it because I thought, is is this really what's going on? And what happened was, is God placed on my heart the idea that Satan wants to use Grace's story. And so I thought, okay, well, how does that work? Why would Satan want Grace's story out? And the reality is that I believe we're all being played, not necessarily you and I, but it's become part of the responsibility that I see I I have. And so the cabal is pretty easy to see. We can see that evil agenda. That's, you, you know, especially if you're in the alternative media, everybody can spot the evil. So Grace was murdered in a hospital. The hospitals have become killing fields. That's, of course, part of the, the agenda 2030, part of the cabal agenda. So we can see that evil. Okay, well, that evil has to become, people have to become aware of that for Satan to operate as an angel of light. Mm-hmm. So that's what I see happening on a a spiritual Hegelian dialectic. The Hegelian dialectic has been around since the beginning of time. Uh, If you process when, when at, when uh, Satan first tricked Eve in the garden, it was to compare the, the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God's way is the tree of life. Eve chose the now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Satan's way. God's way is, always outside of that. So, you know, God tells us very specifically in these end days that the masquerading as an angel of light is going to be so deceitful that even the elect would not be able to recognize it if God didn't didn't step foot in and stop things. So it's going to be masterful, I believe, you know, but first all the evil has to be exposed. So the common person sees this right now, most people, you know, if I talk to people on the street, they do not have a clue as to what's going on. And mostly, even if they do have a clue, they don't believe the story. So this is going to become commonplace. The evil is going to get exposed and then uh, it sets up the security and comfort solution that Satan always always has in his back pocket. I mean, they did it with COVID. COVID was the problem. The Hegelian dialectic is is very simple. Problem, reaction, solution. So the problem was COVID. The reaction was the propaganda to create fear, the solution, the jab. But it's all satanic. Yeah. Okay, so then, but what about on a way bigger scale? I mean, Satan only cares about people's souls. So, I mean, these people that are sold out to the government taking care of them, you know, they're up for their 17th booster. You know, of course, those people are, have already sold their soul. But what about the the angel of light doctrine that would come in as it would be it, um, 
very appealing to have a, a, you know, when the financial system crashes to have that replaced by a gold backed system, that would be very appealing to people. It'd be very appealing to have Nuremberg two trials to put all these people who caused this on trial. Remember Satan doesn't care if he looks good. So he has two sides of the same coin. So We've got the dark side and then the false light side. And he's got a whole fleet of patriots that are, you know, there's a whole patriot movement that is not based on God. So his army is already set up to implement this false light solution. We, we talk, so anyway, that's, yeah, that's, no, that's pretty big stuff. It is. But, and, and we talk about uh, that. And the fact that, that I've admitted that in my life, politics had become an idol. And it yes. came between me and God. And on the show, we try to put God at the center. When I get out of his way and let him do his work, uh, we do succeed in putting God at the center. And I think this is particularly hard when people listen to the horror that befell your family and that uh, you, God is using you um, for such great purposes is to not hate. Um, because, man, it's difficult to not hate the people. And we have to remind ourselves that they are spiritual captives. And we're actually called to free them and to pray for them. And that's, that's such a struggle to pray for the people who, you know, as you, as you describe it, and um, it sounds like murder to me. In my opinion, it sounds exactly as, as what you say it is. And we have to remind ourselves that Satan doesn't care what sin it is. What he cares about is little sins that become many, many little sins and eventually books of sins. And it separates us from God. Um, and eventually just drives us so far apart from God. Uh, that's why we do on, on the show as well, spend a lot of time remem- reminding people that, hey, I want you to be politically active. I want you to vote. I want you to be an activist. I want you to do that. And I want you to bring God's word into this, right? And to make sure that your primary concern is souls. Because the second best, you know, I call it the second greatest consolation prize in history is saving the country. The first best is saving the souls of the people you love and frankly, the people you don't love. Um, because we're called to do that as well. Uh, are you availed of lawyers? I know Stacy ended up having a call when she was on our program. Stacy Grisnick was on our show. She got a call. Well, I did um, from a United States senator who wanted to meet her. We did that. Uh, she got legal representation. Where are you in that battle? Uh, we do have legal representation. Uh, I am not at liberty to talk about the details because yeah. they don't want me to disclose Good. Uh, strategy. Good. Uh, and so I, the, the key is, is I'm not putting any faith in that. You know, we've already said if there's any money involved, we're not taking a penny. We want to be above reproach with yeah. this whole thing. You know, the only purpose of of legal is to, as a tool to potentially stop the behavior sooner versus later. Yeah. Um, so that's the only purpose. But you know, you had said something very important, which is, you know, on the cross, Jesus said, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. And so I do get the question periodically, how do you deal with that, Scott? And the fact is, is God dealt with it. When I was in the hospital and I just about died, he gave me the spirit of forgiveness because as a as a man, you cannot forgive the doctor and nurse who murdered your daughter. That's impossible. And if it was possible, we don't need the gospel. The gospel is what makes that possible. So, so you know, thank God, thank God that he did that for me, because otherwise I would just be an angry dad. Who wants to listen to an angry dad? And, you know, then another piece that you said, I I just want to comment on because it's near and dear to my heart. This, 
this Hegelian dialectic thing, we've got to check. We, we cannot participate in man's system. We are called to not participate. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And this last election, the midterms, I'm from Wisconsin. Uh, so when I spoke at Red Pill, I, I asked everybody, well, what, you know, Ron Johnson won in Wisconsin. Everybody cheers. Okay, well, there was 2.6 million votes cast in Wisconsin. He won by 26,000 votes. So first, you, it should shock you because his, his uh, man that he ran against was a fool compared to Ron Johnson. He should have run, won by a landslide. But look in the context of, so that's the, that's the um, exocentric uh, or esoteric um, Hegelian dialectic as we start spinning out on that. But look at it from God's perspective. He ran against Mandela Barnes, who thinks you can have abortion on demand. Ron Johnson believes in car votes for abortion. So now they both have said publicly that they're willing to murder. So one is just a, a murderer at less degree. So this last election, I did not vote in. It's the first election since I could vote that I did not vote in because I finally saw voting for what it is. And it doesn't mean that there isn't candidates that are godly candidates. And in that case, those would be fine to vote for. But if you're voting for the lesser of two evils, you've chosen to part, you're choosing to participate in the world. And that's, you know, that is the thing. Grace died for me to wake up to that reality of walking with God. Yeah. Well, that's a tough one. And uh, I want to explore that with you. I'd like to have you back and explore that with you. Um, you know, I'm fond of telling, reminding people that there's no such thing as a secular world uh, uh, because you can call it secular and God can say, really? Yeah, try it without me. Right? Take, try taking a breath without me. You know, uh, I listen right. to these maniac psychopaths at the World Economic Forum saying, we're going to build real intelligent design, not from a thick elf in the sky. And I, I, I know this makes me a bad person, but I want to be there on Judgment Day when God says, oh, so you're going to do that, huh? You're the designer. Yeah. Hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take your breath away just for about 40 seconds. And I want you to do something. Now I'm going to take your hands away. See, because I made all that stuff and he sees, he sees Scott. And it's a blessing to have you on the show. And my heart is, my heart is full on one hand, because the Lord is so clearly using you. My heart is sad on another that I didn't get to meet Stacy. I mean, I didn't get to meet your daughter, Grace. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of my friend, Stacy. Yeah. I have a, no, I have a friend. No, I'm thinking of Stacy with Down syndrome. And I'm oh, thinking me. about her beautiful prayer. She comes into our prayer group sometimes. She's the daughter of my uh, my dear friend, Jana. And whenever Stacy prays, she prays in utter clarity. Uh, we had one time were praying for a sister whose husband was making terrible, terrible decisions. And, and all of us were trying to be eloquent and, and, you know, bring God's word into it. And Stacy, with her eyes closed and her hands in front of her face, said, Dear God, please make her husband stop being mean. And uh, so I was thinking of my, my friend, Stacy, uh, down Uh And I, I want to invite you to go with God's good grace and uh, tell everybody this is the Todd Herman Show. And we are blessed to be able to have conversations like this and just uh, pray for spiritual protection for Scott and uh, the full armor of God and continued presence of the Holy Spirit and that he will um, succeed and that God will work through him to bring people to the Lord himself. This is the Todd Herman Show. Please go be well. Be strong, be kind, and if you're awake, act like it. <laughs>